The Bob Murphy Show, episode 135. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This one I'm going to be talking to Adrian Lee Oliver. I saw Adrian... First, uh, he was a guest on Benjamin Boyce's podcast. And by the way, if you don't know who Benjamin Boyce is, particularly if you're interested in the culture war stuff, I highly recommend that you start following him. He was a student at Evergreen, and that, that's where the, you know there were, that's where Brett Weinstein came out of. Um, this Evergreen was the place where there was the students who kind of took over the campus a few years ago. So in any event, Benjamin Boyce was a student there, but don't be misled. He was, he was an older, an older man relative to the age of the typical undergrad. And so he's got his own podcast now and he does, I think, very good commentary on all the culture war stuff. So in any event, my wife had gotten into Benjamin Boyce a while ago. I started watching it with her and then this guy, Adrian Lee Oliver is on and I was just blown away. And I know it's not just my reaction. I was telling everybody, wow, you got to go watch this interview and David R. Henderson agreed with me and, and posted similar comments over at uh, EconLog telling people, wow, this is you know one of the best interviews he's seen all year, that kind of thing. So in any event, where this current episode came from is basically I just saw Adrian and I said, I got to get this guy on my podcast. And fortunately, he agreed. So the basic story is just Adrian grew up with a lot of racist treatment of him and had bad interactions with the police as well. And so he certainly understands where the BLM protesters and that movement in general are coming from, but he disagrees profoundly with some of their um, strategic decisions, let's say. And he thinks that it's going to be harmful and actually further erode racial relations in the United States, among other problems. So that's the context. Um, What brought Adrian to prominence was he had a Twitter thread that just blew up and that's how Benjamin Boyce heard about him and then got him on his show. And that's that's how things developed. All right. So without further ado, we'll jump right in and you'll just understand why some of us have found Adrian's analysis so compelling and fascinating. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Adrian Lee Oliver. Well, Adrian, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you for having me. So as you and I were discussing this before we started recording, on the one hand, we shouldn't have to do this, but I also think it is necessary just given the climate. And I know how some people, when they hear what your views are on some of the like policy issues, might be tempted to dismiss you and say, oh, well, this guy must have had a charmed life and not realize what some of us have been through. So, uh, and I'll folks, I'll link to like Adrian told a bunch of stories that are just shocking, at least to to some of us. Um, that when you were on Benjamin Boyce's podcast, and that that's where I saw it um, and, and became aware of you. But in the interest just of bringing people up to speed, can maybe just one of the stories, namely uh, your interaction with the police, and it, it, it wasn't, uh, they weren't your friends, put it that way. No, um, I had a very adversarial relationship with the police uh, probably up until my late 20s. 
and it, it branches back to my childhood upbringing. And uh, there's just probably not enough space to get into most of that. However, um, I think the, the story that you're referencing, the one that you're interested in, um, is the one that I sort of use to um, distill my sort of views on this claim about um, systemic racism mm -hmm. and how I've come to terms with, through my personal experience, seeing that there's a lot more to be said about that subject than what most people have available to them from their first person experience. Uh, so I, I was in a situation where I'd grown up in foster care and a lot of events had occurred that led me to being placed in a, a, a facility in Louisville um, uh, that's known as an independent living home. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the course of living in, uh, in this uh, sort of home, I had made myself a nuisance to the sort of community that I was living in. I was not somehow just a good guy who got snatched up and mistreated by the police. I was, uh, I was involved in a lot of unsavory things. And I'd sort of made a name with myself, with the police in that area. They were sort of after me. And I was very antagonistic towards them in a lot of different ways. This all comes to a head when I have a friend who uh, is evidently outside. We were living on a street called Grinstead in Louisville, Kentucky, that sort of branches off from Bardstown Road, which is sort of like the party spot back in you know, 2000, 2001, Louisville, Kentucky. It was like the Vegas Strip of, uh, of Louisville, uh, sort of. So evidently he had been out front and he had made overtures to some girl about wanting to get her number and ho holler at her. Mm -hmm. And she said something to the effect, now that I know the full story, that she, she's not interested in black guys, right? Mm -hmm. He takes this and delivers it to us when he runs up the stairs that he's been called a uh, or mm -hmm. something of this fashion. And we don't know what's going on, so we just run out with him headlong into this street fight mm -hmm. where there's this huge party of people leaving Bardstown Road, and we go out, and he starts swinging on people. There's more than one person fighting him, so we just hopped in, and we're defending our friend just on principle that, you know, this is our guy. Uh, and this goes on for a little bit. It's probably four of us against like 20 guys on and off. There's moments where we're stopping and trying to figure out what's going on. And then somebody else throws a blow and it mm -hmm. sort of goes, goes back to um, fisticuffs. And uh, this lasted for quite a, a while. And eventually the police arrive and they, they come in force. It's like the entire precinct uh, has shown up to deal with this incident. And they immediately arrive and I mean, it is peculiar to think that you come up on the scene with no context, except maybe what was said in the, uh, the 911 call. And the first thing that you do is see four people um, fighting with 20 people. And your assumption is that these four people must be the ones who need to be restrained. So they immediately take the, the black guys and they stick us in handcuffs and throw us on the, on the curb. At some point uh, in this altercation, the boy who had misled us into thinking that this was a, a sort of race fight had gone back into my apartment and retrieved a meat cleaver from my kitchen. And he came out and just started swinging wildly at people. And I immediately just took him out. I took it and I took the meat cleaver and set it in some high grass next to a, a telephone pole, a light pole. And uh, so somehow people started saying I was the one who had done this with the meat cleaver. And I was put in a situation where the police are attempting to interrogate me and I'm just being uncooperative. I'm not mm -hmm. going to snitch on my buddy, but I'm also not going to cop to having done this. They can't find the meat cleaver. I hit it pretty good, I guess. Uh, so they resort to what can only be called enhanced interrogation with me. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to understand the context of this is at this point, I'm probably 16 years old. Right, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I was going to say it's important for you to tell people how old you were. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, my roommates were of similar ages. And uh, so was our friend. So they take me and they drag me over to the police cruiser and they turn me upside down in the back seat. They pull everything back to where I'm just crammed in there. They have me sort of dangling from my handcuffs in the back seat, uh, from the back, uh, the back of the other seat. And they just stuff me down in the floor space upside down. So I'm sort of suspended in this, you know, really uncomfortable mm-hmm. position. They turn on the heat, roll up the windows, walk away. And, they and just, it's, it's really hot. It's, yeah. it's in the summer. Yeah, this is yeah. in the middle of summer. And uh, they just come back periodically and just sort of taunt me. You ready to talk yet, buddy? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you were doing all that talking before. Where, where's all that mouth at now sort of situation? So the part that really gets interesting is where as soon as they had handcuffed us and put us on the sidewalk, all of these guys who we had just been fist fighting start sort of advocating on our behalf that this seems to be a racist scenario where all of us were involved. They had enough police presence there where everyone could have been handcuffed. Uh, but for some reason, it's just the black guys being handcuffed. So we immediately realized that there's something that we are not being read in on as to how this all transpired. Uh, mm-hmm. Because here we were fighting these guys thinking that we're just going. Can, can I them. ask you, the guys you were fighting, like, did you know who they were? Like, did you see them in town? It's like, did you vaguely know who they were? Or are these are complete strangers. Yeah, they were complete strangers to us at okay. that point. Okay. I ended up being much more closely involved with them. They were actually um, the friends and uh, of a rock and roll group that lived down the street, four houses down. They had, they were making a name for themselves on MTV back then. They were called Christiansen, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, some of, some of those guys they weren't uh, the band wasn't involved in the fight, but they were involved in uh, extending sort of uh, the diplomacy the next day when all of this was over, and they came back around and right, sort right. of befriended me and some of the guys and resolved that issue. But uh, in the heat of the moment. Uh, we had just assumed we were dealing with some racist dudes. And this is what happens when you call one of our friends. But immediately after we're handcuffed, all of these people start marshalling this outcry about how racist this is. And this is just shocking us. We're like, hold on, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, there's one guy in particular who, even with the police telling everybody to shut up and sit down and leave it alone, he just won't stop. And he's just going hard at the police, being uh, uh, really belligerent. And they finally tell him, you know, right when they're putting me in the back of this cruiser to sort of enact their enhanced interrogation, that if he doesn't stop, they're going to take him downtown. And he just doesn't care. He says, take me downtown. I'll be back in 15 minutes. And they decide to call his bluff and put him in the cruiser. And he tells everybody, I'll be back in 15 minutes. And lo and behold, he is carted off. And within 15, 20 minutes, not very long at all, he does come back. Mm -hmm. And uh, the immediate thing that happens is they unhandcuff all the black guys, start issuing out apologies. And it turned out that the reason for this sort of turning on their heel with what they were doing was that they made the mistake of thinking that they could approach this white guy in the same way unlawfully and unfairly that they were doing us and just, you know, arrest him for uh, in a violation of his uh, freedom of speech. And it turns out that his dad was the DA of Louisville. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he got down, probably even before, I don't think cell phones were very prominent or ubiquitous back then. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how long it took them to get in touch, but it, it was just a complete 180. They came back, they let everybody go, they issued apologies, and they just hightailed it out of there. So, Wait, even with you, like what they pulled you up out of the thing and oh, they, yeah, they yeah, say yeah. sorry? Oh, yeah. They, yeah, they came and got me directly out of that car. They apologized and let us just let everything go. So, um, did they even say something like, as they were parting, like, uh, 
And now, fellas, just come on, let's let's uh, let's keep it down in the future. Or, you know what I mean? Like this any kind of. This is twenty years ago. I can't remember the all of the um, sort of details of the dialogue that went mm-hmm. on. Uh, I don't think that they did. Not to us, at least. I don't think mm-hmm. that there was any sort of real attempt to apologize. Uh, they they did say sorry for this and sorry, for, but I don't think that they addressed us directly in any okay. sort of way that was. Uh, conciliatory anyway well, what um, i actually meant the other way like as a saving face like you know you guys were brawling when we showed up so let's just not do that in the future like we're letting you off easy kind of you know what i mean like the, them yeah, trying to I, save I face I, 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 uh, I honestly remember yeah. that conversation there might have been who knows mm-hmm. i just remember the broad strokes of it it was sure. uh, a really intense thing so you know we were let go and in the process, uh, I should say, of them doing this enhanced inter- interrogation, every time that uh, these cops came over to the police car to sort of taunt me, are you ready to talk yet? I was just being a really nasty, uh, just verbally abusive, saying whatever I could say about what I'm going to do to their families and their wives and uh, mm-hmm. uh, just assaulting their masculinity and uh, uh, every verbal means that I had available to me. So they, they really had a problem with me after this, that mm-hmm. not only did they have to let me go, they had to just swallow the fact that this little punk got away with talking to them in this manner. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that goes down. I'm thinking nothing about it. I, I was in a situation back then where I had sort of gotten into the bar scene at 16 years old under circumstances where people just didn't question whether or not I was an age. Uh, and I could just go into most of these bars on uh, Bardstown Road and not really be carded. So I, I'm, now, I'm can I a- stop you? I'm, I'm forgetting the timeline. Was the drinking age 18 or 21? At this point, yeah, it's twenty-one. Okay, okay, go ahead. Uh, so I'm I'm at a bar about two weeks later, uh, if my memory is accurate, mm. and I'm in the bar having drinks, having a good time. I'm well known there. Uh, I I go there all the time, and out of nowhere, the bouncers come over and they tell me, "Hey, you need to go. You can't be here anymore." And I look at them. I'm trying to figure out what's going on because there are situations where. So I befriended this rock and roll group. This is sort of how much of a regular I was at this bar. This rock and roll group, they were on MTV. They had videos and stuff like that. Uh, I'd taken them to this bar one time, and they tried to go in front. They couldn't get into the bar. But when I told the people they were with me, we got in, right? So mm-hmm. I was that sort of a regular, that a rock and roll group was sort of getting turned away from this bar, and I got uh, a, a lot mm-hmm. of them in. So uh, we are going back and forth, me and these bouncers, and they're like, look, you just need to go. And I go to go out the front door. And they tell me, no, you have to go through the back door. So the way that I felt things were going down was that they must have figured out that I'm a 16-year-old kid in here partying, and they're trying to keep it under wraps and not have me seen leaving and just deal with it that way. And in hindsight, what it obviously had to be was that under whatever circumstances, these officers found out that I was there and somehow entreated these bouncers to have me delivered to them in a handbasket out the back door. Because when I go out this back door, there are just two cops, the ones who had shoved me in this cruiser in this fashion, waiting in the alley for me. Mm-hmm. And they immediately just sort of snatch me up. One of them holds me. They're talking shit to me and just beating the crap out of me one at a time. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. of them knocking me around. The other one takes turns going back and forth. And it was literally just vigilante justice for the ways that I had spoken to them about you know, their family. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hunted me down and they just dash the crap out of me. Can I ask on that one, like, did you see them and there was a moment when you like were considering, can I run away or like, did they tackle you and you didn't even know it was coming? Well, no, I didn't try to run. I, I was drunk. Mm-hmm. The alley was uh, uh, sort of narrow. They had it blocked off. Their, the, their cruiser was sort of blocking 
the, oh, the cruiser was there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a, they had a cruiser that was sort of blocking the. Uh, were they in uniform? Ex- yeah, they were in uniform. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, they were in uniform. I was, I mean, for some reason, I was picturing them being off duty. They would seem duty. less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. This, this was this was on duty or <laughs> at least at, directly after duty or something. I don't know. I just know that they came across me somehow and knew I was at this bar. Got me sort of delivered to the, them in a, uh, a gift basket, and they roughed me up really good and just left me laying there. I slept mm-hmm. in that alley that night. Okay. Because I, I had been beaten so good that I just I didn't get up and I ended mm-hmm. up waking up hours later and I lived literally, you know, a block and a half, two blocks away. So I I just walked home from there. But this is what they did to a sixteen year old kid. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, I don't know if they were aware of my age. Maybe they just assumed me being at the bar meant that I must be uh, an adult and that sort of justified what they did mm-hmm. in their heads. Uh but they tuned me up and they just went about their business. Mm-hmm. So I guess I, I tell this story and the, the most value in it that I think there is, is when people are talking about systemic racism and they're assuming that this lopsided accostment of black people to whatever extent that can be vetted out as a truth uh, of statistics, there's just data that's missing. And for me, uh, this was an epiphany that I started witnessing operating underneath of the layers of a lot of these situations where it just appears that cops have some sort of agenda or feud against uh, of people of color. And I came to realize that this isn't really the case. I think what we're witnessing is that police will treat anyone like this if given the opportunity. It just so happens that just like with that boy who ended up having a father who was a DA and immediately made them pay a price for their misbehavior. When cops are going about their business and they just don't want to deal with the red tape and the they just want to get things done. I think that they would treat anyone like this insofar if, as it's the case that they can do this cost-benefit analysis where when you look at people of color, there's these steps of removal that you can almost guarantee they have away from people in power who could make their life a living hell if the report mm-hmm. gets to this person that they've mistreated this individual. And on the converse, when you're dealing with white people and you're a cop, you have to be a lot more wary of mm-hmm. exactly steps of removal these white people have from someone in power. It's just a statistical fact that there aren't very many black CEOs and uh, prominent lawyers and senators and representatives, mm-hmm. things of this nature, uh, where you can almost give yourself license to act with impunity uh, uh, when you're dealing with people of color uh, in a way that you can't when you're dealing with white people, because you never know who their uncle is. You never know who right. their, their professor is. Uh, and I think this is just one of the beginning ways to begin to demonstrate that a lot of these claims about um, systemic racism are just examples of flawed samples and bad data. And uh, yeah, that is typically the way that I approach Mm -hmm. understanding these things. Yeah. And also too, just to underscore your point there, I mean, there's plenty of examples of like you know, the police beating to death, like some homeless white guy or something, you know, who's crying out, you know, mentally ill or something. And so clearly it's, it's, you know. Yeah. I went into this on uh, the podcast with Benjamin Boyce, but the the signal was bad and he just had to cut it. But Mm -hmm. I was talking about the, uh, the other sort of personal observation that I had in my life that uh, made this seem, uh, my observation seem a little bit more likely than these claims that we are sort of beset by this system of white power that permeates the police system uh, uh, in totality and that all these outcomes of criminality and stuff are a result of that association. I would be in trailer parks a lot in my life. You know, I, I was 
not a great person. I was doing unsavory things in those places. And when you would see the way that police would treat white people in trailer parks, it's just the same way that they treat black people everywhere else. They, mm-hmm. Because they're doing that same cost-benefit analysis where these steps of removal become apparent. If you're living in a trailer park, what is the likelihood that you are in any sort of contact with people of, in positions of power who could make their life miserable if they just treat you however they want? And uh, this is huge, a huge contrast from the uh, – so I have you know, friends across um, all different races, and I, I would have these moments where I would discuss my treatment from the police with my white friends. And they would tell me stories about the way that they, uh, their interactions with police. And I would just tell – like the first thing that cops used to do, this is the early 2000s, uh, uh, 90s. I mean you couldn't be a black guy being detained by the police without guns on you. Like they, they would unholster their guns and put them on you. There's one situation I, was, I had a mentor when I was like 18 uh, mm-hmm. and I was, uh, on the corner of Fifth Street and um, Martin Luther King in Easton, uh, Lexington, Kentucky. So I'm an 18 year old kid. My mentor's coming to pick me up because I have, you know, uh, some sort of workout that I'm supposed to go do with him. It's a guy named George Duvall, sort of a stand up comedian now and a, a motivational speaker. And he's supposed to pick me up on that corner and I'm standing there with a the duffel bag. Someone calls the police. And just assumes that I must be there. So, like, this is, you know, <laughs> some episode of The Wire where I'm just standing out with a duffel bag full of some sort of drugs. And so the police pull up on me. There's several cruisers that roll up. And, they and this just is in broad up. daylight or is it this night? This is broad daylight. Yeah, this uh-huh. is like 11 o'clock in the morning. You know, mm-hmm. I'm waiting for this guy to come and get me. We're going to go to the YMCA downtown and we're going to mm-hmm. sort of uh, uh, spend some time together. And they just hop out of their cars and put guns on me immediately, tackle me to the ground, knees in my neck, the whole George Floyd uh, uh, sort of mm-hmm. situation. And they go through my duffel bag. It's just my gym clothes, you know? And right about that time, my mentor shows up and sees what's happening. And he, he just can't, he can't contain his anger that you can't even be a black guy standing on the corner waiting to go to the gym with your friend and not have mm-hmm. this happen to you. Mm-hmm. So um, there, there are plenty of situations um, where I could, continue going where I have experienced what I would have automatically assumed to have been pure racial, uh, racially motivated profiling and racism, Mm -hmm. discrimination. But in other areas of my life, I've had the opportunity to witness these sort of bottom layers of uh, of this phenomenon. And it, it leads me to believe that in most, I don't doubt that I have dealt with that sort of thing that was directly the result of some individual's racism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the claim of systemic racism just doesn't sit well with me uh, on these issues. Okay, so thanks for sharing that. And again, the, the I think it was important just to establish that you're not naive to this. You, you clearly oh. have personally experienced things that are at the root of a lot of the uh, protests and, and so forth. So with that sort of out of the way, I do want to circle back now to this Twitter thread that I think was the thing that sort of put you on the map and all of a sudden. Yeah. So here, I'm just going to read the the introductory one and then one that was like nested in there and, and just have you elaborate if you, if you would. So you start out, So, and, but this was all folks from June 28th and of course at bobmurphyshow.com slash 135. I'll put links to, you know, Adrian's uh, Twitter thread and everything you want to go see there and his other appearances. But anyway, you start out saying, In the same way that it is said that the Trump presidency has politically polarized every corner of discourse in America, it is clear that these national protests, largely attributed to BLM, or Black Lives Matter, are racially polarizing every corner of our nation as well. And then the thing that really resonated with me that I definitely want to make sure we we talk about is you said later on in this thread, 
I'm hearing from white friends about loads of people they've known for their entire lives who were never racist before, suddenly radicalized and identifying as white nationalist after feeling under attack by rampant, quote, all whites are inherently racist, quote, implicit bias rhetoric. And then the next one, and I'll stop and let you respond. You said, I'm seeing black friends and family who never cared about race issues suddenly spending their days saying disparaging and racist things against white people and embracing the most revisionist, anti-historical narratives about the history of slavery and racism possible to concoct. So some provocative words there, Adrian. Uh, can you elaborate on those thoughts? I do want to push pause on that just for one second yep. and just make one thing very clear yep. because uh, I've been in conversation with a few different people and I, I don't want to leave my sort of testimony and ideas open uh, to being just cheerfully co-opted by alt-right types who sure. take what I'm saying about Black Lives Matter and want to use it in their agenda to sort of confirm all of the things that they think about mm -hmm. the current state of the nation. When I talk in disparaging terms about Black Lives Matter and about the anti-racism movement, uh, it's not out of some sort of disdain for those communities, right? I am concerned about my community in a very serious way. I am concerned about the way that a lot of these ideas that are the underpinnings of this anti-racism movement are toxifying the sort of collective intellectual consciousness of the black community and the, mm -hmm. uh, the community of people of color at large. And if anyone thinks that anything I'm saying is sympathetic to some sort of racialized motivation that has nothing to do with me. And uh, I would not take very well to finding out that people were receiving my words in that way and, mm -hmm. and running with them. So um, I, I, I move from a position of compassion on all of these different sides. I, I find compassion for people who were raised in uh, situations where they're convinced by racist ideology in the same way that I have compassion for all these people who are just running amok in our country and uh, uh, sort of forwarding this Black Lives Matter, anti-racism, mm -hmm. uh, postmodernist dogma. So I don't want to get mixed up in people thinking that that has anything to do with my motivations. Now, to your question. Well, can I even say, isn't that kind of part of the, your point, though, that things are so polarized that now, like, if you feel like one side is saying stuff that's so extreme that someone just saying, you know, I think that might be a bit much, like, if, if it's only the two options period, like you have to be fully on board with this agenda of the one group, otherwise you're, must be fully on board with the other one, that, that it's, it's this yeah, weird dynamic where most people are afraid to say anything because they don't want to be attributed to the people whose guts they hate, but yet eventually they got to say something when it's like, whoa, the, the people who should be my friends are just saying crazier, or at least the, the radicals speaking on their behalf are saying crazier and crazier stuff. So it's this weird thing where like the radicals on both ends get to set what the agenda is and make it look like there's these two choices. Everyone has to pick one. Yeah. It is becoming a situation where there are no gray areas that uh, are mm -hmm. being left for people to explore nuance and to have subversive opinions. And that concerns me. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot more gray here than there is black and white. Mm -hmm. And I want to use my voice to make sure that people are acknowledging this and exploring right. those areas. Right. right? And uh, so, yeah, uh, definitely. So the question that you were uh, putting to me was, uh, yeah, uh, I see in my personal uh, social groups where I'm having conversations with white friends and they're telling me about these uncles or friends or classmates who they've known their entire life to be just 
you know, good people who have no racist bone in their body, but they're encountering all of this rhetoric uh, that comes from uh, black liberation theology and that comes from critical race theory and that comes from uh, the sort of pseudoscientific concepts of implicit bias and uh, these sort of psychological projectings of white fragility. And they're finding themselves being bat down into this corner where people are telling them that there's only two options. One, you are completely in line with this anti-racism movement that is anything but that at this point. Uh, and any dissent from any of the sort of tenets of that dogma identifies you as opposition. But it's not even that simple. It's even worse than that. You are, as a white person, permanently racist. And there's mm-hmm. nothing that you can do about that. This, uh, this idea of implicit bias that is one of these uh, pillars of the anti-racism movement is a pseudoscientific failed hypothesis from start to finish. However, for the people who fail to acknowledge or understand that that is the case, this can be used as a tool to sort of silence people for their whiteness and tell them that they're irredeemable on issues of race in a way that they can never overcome. And Mm -hmm. just imagine being told that you are racist, it's in your bones, and there's nothing you can do about it. So in all of thinking that I'm doing about critical theories, this is the one thing that I find to be the most repugnant and dangerous concept that's floating around out there in the sort of ethos of this uh, uh, woke, woke movement. And it's not just because that's my opinion. It's because I'm having these conversations where it's being vetted out to be true, that this is right. the main thing that is radicalizing the sort of white people who are taking issue with this. And it doesn't mean that they're turning racist. It just means that to a certain extent, if you're going to define them as that and there's no safe place within your movement where they can represent their personal dignity and their, their, their historical integrity in a way where it's accepted on the merit of their testimony that this is not who they are, right? Or even they could point at their deeds and their works, and that's still not good enough for people who subscribe to those worldviews. You're still racist, and the best thing that you can do right. is shut up and do what black people tell you and uh, bring about this revolution as a subservient to these uh, sort of ideologies. People are not taking that well. And what it's doing, it's pushing people further and further to the right, further towards white nationalism, or at the very least, to a position of extreme opposition to the, the larger movement, right? And people are getting wrapped up in these ideas in a way where it's completely taking the focus off of the larger goals. I mean, mm-hmm. I think everyone wants some sort of police reform. Uh, uh, white people are being brutalized by the police to an extent that uh, even bl- black people in gross numbers are not. Uh, there, there was th- this opportunity to have this be a unifying cause for everyone in America to sort of mm-hmm. marshal around. And the fact that it's sort of been hijacked and completely focused on as an issue that only pertains uh, or major- as a majority pertains to black people, it is creating factions of individuals who are not people of color, who really take issue with the way that this is being rolled out. And so there's a spectrum of different um, degrees of how this is affecting people psychologically and socially. But um, the common denominator is that it is a reaction to these ideas and this rhetoric and this sort of tool that has been created uh, by the woke ideology where black people, especially in uh, just mixed company of non-scholars who have no way of marshalling a verbal 
defense of themselves against these ideas mm-hmm. um, is definitely creating more opposition than it is unity. Yeah, I mean, just to echo what you're saying there, and, and may I'm curious, I'll, I'll try to like maybe give two explanations of, of what you're driving, but you would, yeah, just empirically, I've noticed, yeah, people that I never would have thought, like I never heard say, are white people, I should clarify, are speaking and thing, you know, saying stuff that's pretty racially charged, as they say. But then you stop and you look at it, and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's because, you know, and people will say something like, um, for example, oh, so the everyone else is allowed to have pride in their heritage and, and their race and whatever, except white people, right? Like if you took something like, like black pride or something and just yeah. change it to white, it would sound like something Hitler would say. But yet if, if it's black, then it's fine. You know what I mean? And it's like, I don't, I feel uncomfortable and I never talk like that because it just it creeps me out. But yet it does seem like if someone's talking like that and they say, well, why can't we talk like that? Everyone else gets to, you know what I mean? It's like, well, I guess because of the history and the connotation, you know. So it's, there is that element. And also I've noticed where with like the term racist, they don't even use that anymore. Now it's white supremacist because I guess racist is too, you know, boring. And if that gets applied to things that are clearly not, then the, the legitimate ones, you know, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf situation where things that really are racist or, you know, even like just jokes and whatever, like somebody might say something clearly racist on a Twitter thread. And if I tell the guy off, he can be like, oh, now there's political correctness and policing of, you know what I mean? Like it, the, he can invoke all this stuff that I am against. And yet it's like, well, yeah, but in your case, I actually do think that would have been correct. But unfortunately, these people have used that terminology and claimed offense on things that really aren't a big deal. And so now, you know, that 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 label has lost its punch. And so yeah. it's, it is, a, and then the, I guess the last thing I've noticed is the alt-right types when they're saying, hey, everyone, we need to gather our forces and circle the wagons, the big ones come. And normally people would have, you know, the normal people would have said, no, you're crazy. You're an extreme, but with stuff going on, you can see more and more people saying, geez, maybe these guys are right. It does look, you know, so I'm, are, are you seeing, I, I don't know, am, am I, do you get what I'm, where I'm coming from with that stuff? Totally, yeah. The sort of linguistic landscape of discussing mm-hmm. race issues and gender issues and um, all these issues that critical theories are sort of um, centralized around has become fraught to a point where anyone who so desires to pick up these tools of rhetoric can literally take anything that anyone says uh, at this point and make it problematic uh, mm-hmm. in, in a way where without a very thorough understanding of what you're dealing with, there's almost no means that you might have to have, a, have any sort of cogent defense that doesn't leave you open to these accusations, right? Right. And that's, that is a very big problem. That's really why there's a lot of people who are currently sort of speaking about this anti-racism and woke phenomenon as being religious or religion adjacent. And I don't think that that is a correct analysis of what we're witnessing. So for the fact that on, especially on the black side of my social circle, I know some intelligent black people, educated black people who are dealing with these ideas. And I know for a fact that they know, just like I know, that this is all just nonsense, but they are still willing to pick up these concepts and use them in conversation as tools to achieve these ends because they believe that the ends justify the means, that if this is the way that we go about somehow toppling the status quo and doing away with this perceived 
all-encompassing system of white power and uh, white supremacy that it's, it justifies this level of disingenuous intellectual dishonesty, right? Where these people are aware that implicit bias is just a, a failed hypothesis. They're aware that critical race theory is just complete bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they are forwarding these ideas and adhering to these concepts because of the power that it gives you socially. So I, I think this, that what we're dealing with is more closely in the vein of sophistry, just old school sophistry, mm-hmm. where it is a awareness of the fact of your deception in company with a reveling in the fact that the deception that you're playing out, it's useful and you can, you can always win. It's this bulletproof set of uh, ideas that you can use to just win in any conversation when it's regarding these issues. So uh, I don't think that we're, we're witnessing anything close to religion. The people, especially at the, the top of these sort of the, the thought leaders in these things, I don't think that they actually believe that all white people, for example, are racist or uh, that the value of a human being uh, in society as intersectionality would have you believe is some sort of a uh, 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 analysis of the different types of oppression that you can claim in this hierarchy. And that's how you submit your status socially. Uh, mm-hmm in this dynamic, I don't think that a lot of people, the, the, the intelligent people actually believe this. I do accept the fact that there are probably people on the lower rungs of this ladder who are not engaged with the literature uh, and are not uh, seeing this critically. And they're just realizing that you can identify with this perspective and use these tools. And suddenly you are in a completely different social category uh, as far as status is concerned, right? So um, yeah. To me, this isn't anything akin to a religious um, movement as much as people might want to claim that. And just to make sure I'm not missing your point, you're saying because you think with a, re- a genuine religious movement, people really, they're true believers. Right. Yeah. You're saying with this, you yeah, think yeah. it's... Well, I mean, there, you, could, you could sort of nitpick and say that, that we know that's at the top levels of a lot of clergy and different denominations that the evidence has been sort of put out that a lot of these people are actually not believers or not least at least not believers in the same way that their flock is believers. Right. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with much more nuanced and high level um, thought and they actually entertain doubt as a honorable sort of thing uh, uh, in faith, but they don't, they don't preach that to the, to, to their uh, congregation. Uh, so, I guess there is that where we're, we're sort of seeing that mirrored in the, uh, the woke movement where it's got to be clear to everyone that mm-hmm. the people at the top uh, know the sort of foundational issues with what they're espousing. Mm-hmm. However, they're not, they're not ensuring that those pieces of information are trickling down to mm-hmm. the masses. Right. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion to explain why you should contribute to The Bob Murphy Show if you haven't yet already. I'm telling you guys, I got a lot of stuff that I want to cover, not just the interviews, great interviews I got lined up, but also some old school material talking about the roots of progressivism, postmodernism, all kinds of stuff that I think is important to understand what the heck is going on right now in U.S. uh, culture and politics. But, you know, my time is limited. And so uh, the more of you who donate... It just means the more time I can devote to the podcast because I'd love to be doing this and nothing else, but we're not quite there yet. I appreciate the contributions that have really been flowing in. I appreciate that a lot. If you haven't yet done so and you're on the fence, go ahead, give it a whirl. 
Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks, everybody. So th- this is interesting. I actually, I promise folks listening, I wasn't going to go into this. Um, this is like libertarian inside baseball stuff and libertarians love to love to fight amongst each other. So I don't know how much this was on your radar, Adrian, but the, the Libertarian Party nominee recently tweeted out uh, saying, it's not enough to merely be not racist. We must be actively anti-racist and then hashtag Black Lives Matter. So a bunch of us were saying, you know, to explain, you know, the founders of BLM are explicitly Marxist. And that quote goes back to Angela Davis, Marx, you know, maybe there's probably a way you could have signified blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And then you could see how the back and forth would go. People say, oh, come on, the rank and file aren't a bunch of Marxists. This is about police brutality. She was just trying to reach out. So I'm wondering when you're here, you're distinguishing like the people at the top who are like orchestrating this and picking the dogmas. Do you think there's like a, well, anyway, given that I'm just wondering, like, is there something more sinister afoot or is it just you're saying they they latched onto these terms from the, from the social science literature and are running with it, but, or is it like a Trojan horse kind of thing? So insofar as I'm aware that there are thought leaders in these areas who are on record in their own essays and books saying that this was their intentions, mm-hmm. you, you have to entertain that there is something a little bit more sinister about this, where there has been this sort of behind closed doors uh, faction of intellectuals who have been sort of twiddling their thumbs, waiting for this opportunity to present itself. And the way that they sort of moved in uh, and started sort of proliferating their ideas uh, at the right moment, it's not a coincidence. I mean, we saw the same thing with the Arab Spring, where there were all these people who were really going for real social justice. And somehow that was radicalized from within uh, by questioning their Muslim authenticity and sort Mm -hmm. of getting people to adopt uh, a more uh, fundamentalist narrative in their uh, revolutionary stances. And that's a lot of what we're witnessing with this anti-racist movement is everyone who is just a decent human being looks at what these critical theories are claiming they want to do, just the overarching goals. We want more racial equality. We want police reform. We want equality of opportunity. I don't really know how you deal with the, uh, the desire for equality of outcomes without getting really bogged down in arguments about meritocracy. But this is, this is the, the sort of bait and switch that they're using mm-hmm. to get good people. Because I do believe that by and large, everyone who is on that side, they think that they're doing the best work that has ever been done in social justice. They are convinced of the fact that they are on the right side of history. That is their narrative, right? And it's just because they're not aware of the, well, by and large, I don't believe that very many people are aware of the sort of nonsense that is underpinning these claims uh, or, or these academic approaches to claiming to want to resolve these issues, right? Yeah. And you, you use the phrase bait and switch. Another one that lately I think is, well, is a Mott and Bailey. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Terminology? Tactics, yeah. yeah. So, so it's the, a little bit different. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. The Mo Bailey tactic is a little, so a bait and switch uh, is, you know, just this schemey con man tactic where you have somebody believe that you're selling one thing. And obviously, you know, you're an economist. You, I don't need to explain this to you. But the Moton Bailey is a little bit more sinister than that because it implies that there is a synergy between the 
conservative elements of a, a movement and the radical arm of the movement where they sort of go back and forth using each other to keep the other one out of hot water. So the Mo Bailey tactic is basically uh, you've got these people back here who are proselytizing um, the uh, uh, benevolence of cri uh, critical theories. And then up here, you've got these people who are saying shit like defund the police and abolish the police and all this other radical nonsense. Uh, the silence about racism is violence and speech is violence and all of these. And these people back here will sit back and, well, we disavow. The, they won't they won't be very specific or very adamant about the ways in which they disavow. But they know that those narratives are actually furthering their sort of entrenchment in, in the movement. And it's just convenient that when these people get called on their crap, they can fall back and say, well, right. no, this is what we really mean. Because, right. And then these people can say, yeah, that's what they really mean, while always knowing that they actually aren't meaning the same thing that they're saying. But there is this mutual benefit to both of them sort of playing to each other's cards, right? Right, exactly. And then, like in this context, so when some of us were questioning, geez, you know, you should you have tweeted that hashtag Black Lives Matter, you know, people – Oh, you're saying black lives don't matter? I was like, well, no, we're not saying that. We're saying, though, there's a lot more wrapped up with this, or at least in some people's minds, and it doesn't stop there, or at least, you know, tread with with caution. Yeah, um, as a black person, man, uh, oh, God, you can't, I, I, I hear that as I'm saying it, and it sound, it feels bad. That's how bad things has got, have gotten. I can't even, like, begin a sentence with as a black man. But, I mean, I, I do find some sort of utility in having this social exercise of, saying Black Lives Matter, it's just a shame that it's mm -hmm. been tainted with all the associations with these other behaviors and tactics and ideas because, yeah, it's just sort of like save the whales, you know? Right. It, it should just be that benign where you're expressing your affinity or a, a subscription to an ideal, but it's become sort of loaded in a way where you can't even say that and you can't say all all lives matter because now that's tainted with the symbology right. that it is this refutation of this claim that black lives matter. Um, so this is that whole fraught linguistic landscape that I'm talking about. Almost everything is tainted with some sort of ideological landmines. Yeah, on that, there was some guy, I can't remember the guy's name, but there was some like old school sports broadcaster or something that somebody tweeted at him, hey, what do you think about Black Lives Matter? And he wrote back, oh, I think all lives matter. And he got fired. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it was, now, should he have known? But I, I don't, you know, I don't know what the guy knew or whatever. And it, it is funny how, you know, one would say, I would need to know more to know, was he being sarcastic? You know what I mean? Like, in other words, somebody could mean something not great by that, even though it's a pretty straightforward, of course, all lives matter. What do you mean? Gee. Yeah. So the, it is a weird place we're in culturally now where this is the kind of conversations we're having. So you, you've mentioned a few, and I've seen you write this. I want to have you elaborate. You're saying that this notion of implicit bias is a failed hypothesis. What do you mean by that? So there were a couple of scientists uh, back in the 90s, um, Greenwald and Banaji, and these were just real scientists who were under the impression that they were dealing with a segment of our reality that could be vetted out through experimentation, that implicit bias might be a fact of our neurological reality where the claim is that not just about race, not uh, ju just that with your relationship to any incoming stimulus, you have biases that are immediately formed previous to your ability to interact with them uh, in cognition. So they kick in before your social con conditioning, before your, your personal convictions. All of these things are irrelevant, supposedly, when it deals with this concept of uh, implicit bias. And they 
they attempted to vet this out through experimentation for several years, and it just turned out that it was not predictive of anything uh, mm-hmm. relevant. It was uh, there were replication problems with the hypothesis that said, you know, if you take this test multiple times, it's going to tell you you're a different person every time, basically. So if you actually ha- held a certain level of implicit bias on certain things, you should be scoring very similar uh, to right. your last scores, unless you know there's nothing concrete about it. So there's all these reasons that uh, the pioneers of the very concept of implicit bias sort of abandoned ship. And there are other people who have picked up the mantle and they're doing a little bit more work on it. But it's it's wholly unscientific. And at this point, to claim that it is some sort of science is just a flat out lie. There are scientific people involved with looking at it. But there are scientists looking at everything. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, there are scientists looking at telekinesis. Does that mean that we should be looking at telekinesis as something that's socially causal and we should be taking seriously and should be active in the way that we're doing our evaluations of the current situation in society? I don't think so. Right. Um, it, and yet, as you say, though, like people use the f- phrase implicit bias and I don't get the sense that many of them are going to first go check to make sure it's empirically valid. Like it's mm. sort of like a priori, of course this is true. Mm, yeah. And, and for someone to doubt it even is a sign that, you know, that you're a bad person. That's the issue. Uh, the issue, and this is why I've taken up calling these tenets of critical theory dogma, is because even the questioning of them is uh, a taboo among certain crowds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The claim that you're dealing with scientific facts is an open invitation for interrogation. So the spirit in which they're, uh, they're, uh, they're doing this, first of all, this is another one of those Moat Bailey tactics that we were talking about. On the one hand, these people are willing to call the things that they're underpinning their intellectual movement with scientific because they know that that garners credibility. But on the other hand, they're completely denying that science is a, a valid way of approaching the world. So you just see the sophistry in, in, in these interactions where, mm-hmm. oh, so when it's benefiting you, you will forward the scientificness of, the, uh, of these ideas. However, when it is not convenient for your agenda, science doesn't matter. And in fact, science only matters to the extent that it must be deconstructed because it is this pillar of white power and um, white supremacy. So um, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too with a lot of this. And uh, people hopefully are catching on. Mm-hmm. So let me, I don't know if you've thought this through, but I can see a lot of people listening to us and, and agreeing with everything you've said, but sort of throwing up their hands and being like, so Adrian, you know, what do we do? Because obviously we can't just let the police keep doing what they've been doing. Something's got to be done. And it sounds like, you know, you don't like the way the the reaction has been led or, you know, so what are we supposed to do? There's a lot that I could say about that. I I know we're we're sort of uh, limited for time, so let me let me try to. Think I mean, it, I, I just didn't want to take. To, if you want to go over, I'm fine oh, going okay, a little cool. over. Yeah, let's do yeah. it. So first of all, uh, I've sort of been making this point uh, in private conversations, and to a lesser extent uh, on recent podcasts, where everyone is asking me, "Well, what is so problematic about saying that the rates of uh, these incidents with police are higher for Black people, and therefore it justifies?" Um, having a, a, a focused um, agenda to first and foremost deal with that issue for that community, right? And mm-hmm. I think I can do this very briefly in a way that I haven't been able to because I've, I've been going back and forth about this with a few different people. And I just want to make the point that outcomes matter more than anything. And if you're trying to 
say that you want to fix problems, it should be evident through your tactics and your behavior that you are trying to approach those issues in ways that have proven efficacy, right? And the one thing that we're noticing about this sort of emblem or banner that the anti-racism movement is marching under is that it's becoming it's become divisive to a point where it's undermining the larger goals. And, mm-hmm. and the only thing that you really have to realize to understand why Black Lives Matter, however well-intentioned that was, and however scrupulous the people who first sort of put it forward into the public consciousness were being when they thought that this was something that needed to be lifted up and elevated to uh, the social consciousness, it is not having good outcomes. And there's a reason for that. It is internally divisive. And this Mm -hmm. is a very important point that I I think a lot of people need to um, pay attention to. And it's just that when you do what Black Lives Matter is doing in our nation, uh, and you're sort of claiming an issue that involves way more people than just uh, people of color, but you're insisting that everyone else suspend their claim to their experiences and just allow you to have the microphone. You're creating this division amongst the victims of these practices, right? Where it creates this in-group, out-group scenario within Mm -hmm. the actual demographic of the people who are victims of this thing. And it just turns into infighting. And that's what we're witnessing right now. The point that I, I make is that, yes, you cannot say all lives matter anymore. But had we started off five years ago, flying under that banner, a completely unifying banner, right? Where everyone got to represent their experiences and their ideas on, the, on equal footing, we would be in a completely different situation right now than we, uh, than we are. And this is just something that you can predict as a sort of abstract conceptual forecast. When, when, you, when you divide in that way, it's always going to create this division. And the counter, you just have to entertain the counterfactual reality that hasn't happened and is probably not going to happen where we, we decided to do it the other way around. And we said, we're going to make this all inclusive. You wouldn't have these factions popping up of resistance and you wouldn't have this in-group fighting and that's undermining uh, the possibility for the larger goals to be achieved of some sort of police reform in America. So w- when I think about the, the main issue that I have with BLM, I'm, uh, I'm just not really paying that much attention to them anymore. Uh, I, I see that the academic underpinnings are more of the, the, the devil that we, we need to be um, fighting. And I'm not too concerned with uh, uh, BLM in that, in that way. However, when you're talking about outcomes of the movement and really wanting to get things done, had we just said, let's solve this problem for everybody, mm-hmm. we would be having completely different outcomes right now. And I think that's just a point that it can be vetted out uh, through mm-hmm. historical precedents, through the current outcomes that we are experiencing. And it's unfortunate that that's where we are. Uh, I've, I've no solution, really, unless these, the, the people who are doing the Black Lives Matter banner decide that it is in the best interest of our nation to stop using that form of rhetoric, right? The mm-hmm. only thing that could switch this is if they really just committed to a unifying slogan like every life matters or something of that nature that isn't already tainted with symbology of being some sort of reputation of Black Lives Matter or some sort of alt-right slogan uh, or white power slogan. And mm-hmm. that is my main issue with the, uh, the, whole, the whole BLM uh, stylization of this movement becoming racialized in this fashion. Okay, so just to make sure I'm understanding, you're, you're saying like, for example, if they had used some other slogan like like police murder is still murder or something like that, like something kind of catchy but yet to isolate but by not introducing the racial element because number one, it excludes all the white mm-hmm. victims 
And number two, it kind of makes white people get defensive. Well, what about black on black violence? You know, and they exactly. you know start exactly. listening to Sean Hannity or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's exactly the type of um, division that it breeds. Uh, mm-hmm. You're tacitly in, uh, implying to uh, uh, all these other people that their experience doesn't matter as much as yours. You're stepping inside of this loss of life phenomenon and you're playing a, a statistical game and sort of p-hacking in a way where you are skewing the statistics in the favor of your personal grievance in exclusion to numerous mm-hmm. other people who have been affected by the same thing and telling them they don't get to talk. And mm-hmm. there's no way that that turns out good for the movement or in, individuals involved with it. Well, l- let me just be devil's advocate here. Why does that happen then? Because presumably the people in the movement want to succeed. And likewise, it kind of goes back. And I, I'm going to go ahead and just say, I was trying not to bring in the LP stuff, the Libertarian Party stuff. But my point, I didn't understand. Like, look, at you could have reached out to everyone who's concerned about police and said, hey, the Libertarians want to legalize drugs. They want to get rid of the minimum wage. So I don't know, Adrian, if you agree with me, but in my view, that would help you know, revitalize the inner city, a lot of these things. So a lot of the issues people care about, I think the standard libertarian policy positions would would help. And so I said, so why don't you do that instead of being deliberately divisive when you know some of the people who are libertarian aren't going to like BLM because they were founded by Marxists. And yet they did that. So presumably the people running BLM, they're, they're good organizers. Like in other words, they're the ones who now have the country doing what they wanted and you and me are talking on a podcast. So you get what I'm saying? It's it's just an incident of uh, Uh outcome. So we could be in the exact same situation where the founders of BLM were Marxists, but that fact wasn't causal in any of the the movement, right? Where Mm -hmm. it was just incidental. But it is because they are sort of using this movement to sneak their convictions and ideas and uh, uh, ideology in through the back door that it is a problem. So I, 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 I get that people on principle that these people are ideologically opposed to them. But I wouldn't have taken issue with that at all had it not been for the fact that those ideas are bubbling to the fore and causing the sort of outcomes right. that experience. Let, let me make sure though. So, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with what you just said, but I want to make sure I'm saying to you and me, it's obvious look at if what the point here is like with the BLM, if what the point is, is to end police brutality against black people or people in general, they could have done it better yeah. And, and my thing with the LP, the analogy I was just using is, to me, I was like, no, that was an unforced error. You could have sent the same tweet that would have been reaching out to new people without using that hashtag. You could have, all the things, all the benefits of what you did, you could have had without the downside if you had just reworded it. And I'm saying maybe we're being naive and thinking that the only goal in mind is what we think it is. In other words, like the people who now are going around and they're famous, you know, giving interviews on how they founded BLM or like maybe if they had done a more neutral thing and presumably there were groups that were more neutral and just end police brutality. And we don't know who they are because they didn't pick up steam. And so maybe there is some reason that what the system is selecting for is actually not the one that actually, you know, solves the problem. Yeah. So that's one of these uncomfortable truths that I've sort of been having to wrestle with and deal with. Uh, I was speaking to Armin Nababi uh, on his podcast, and he sort of held my feet to the fire on that. And you just have to acknowledge to a certain extent that this sort of issue has been being championed for a very long time, and it's just been stuffed in small corners and never mm-hmm. picked up any steam. And we just have to acknowledge that there must have been some utility in 
the way that BLM and people who were marching under that banner, banner uh, and protesting and even rioting, you have to say that there was some utility in that sort of raucous behavior, because I don't think that we would have the ear of the powers that be or the government in the way that mm-hmm. we do right now to have this conversation had it not been for them being forced into a position to you know, protect their constituents' uh, personal property and companies and whatnot. Right. So that's just unfortunate, uh, because the one thing that you do have to realize is these people have a little bit of a point that black people and people of color and people who are victims of police brutality, it's not like they've been silent on this issue until May. It, right. it is something that has been very prominent in the social dynamic for a while, but for some reason, we're just now getting to the point where politicians are ready to do something about this. So it's really uncomfortable to accept, but that is just sort of what seems to be a fact about the reality that we're in right now. Does it mean that it's okay? Does it mean that we should support that sort of behavior and those sort of tactics? No, because there's a utilitarian distinction and there's also a moral distinction where this is obviously morally abhorrent. Mm -hmm. You you cannot Mm -hmm. have people um, thinking that violence is speech uh, uh, and thinking that it's okay to use violence as long as it's for these noble goals uh, in some way. Uh, that, that has consequences um, in society that we haven't really felt to the full extent yet. I, I think it's coming. Um, but yeah, we, we can't continue in that fashion. Can I ask one last one? You had a line a minute ago I think you referred to like the philosophical underpinnings or something like that. And that really resonated with me because, yeah, my wife and I have just been going on a YouTube rabbit holes lately into the Frankfurt School and Marcuse and, uh, you know, postmodernism and all this stuff. And it seems like you really need like things that seem kind of crazy and they just fell out of nowhere in 2020 that, no, you could have traced this stuff back for decades. And so do you want to speak to that a little bit? I am not a person who has spent much time giving my attention to that literature. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that you necessarily need to, to have something um, valuable to say about it. It's just apparent that you can make commentary based on outcomes, commentary based on reason, logic, uh, all of these different tools that are our disposal. However, I did watch before our podcast, your most recent podcast with Theodore. Oh, Thaddeus Russell. Thaddeus, Yes. And uh, I saw the way that he conducted himself in that interview with you. And this is, this is what I mean about the tactics of people who are, I don't want, it's not fair, he's not here to defend himself. But since we're on the subject, I watched him in that interview sort of befuddle you with what he would call his science, where he's talking about, oh, well, science was wrong about this, and it was wrong about that. And uh, uh, how do we know that this narrative isn't just as false as the one that we overturned? And um, mm-hmm. so I had that. I retweeted that uh, thing and I made some comments. And in the feed, someone sent me a video of him having a similar conversation with a couple of uh, academics, uh, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. And so this is Mm -hmm. April. Mm -hmm. And so he tries to marshal this exact same sort of postmodernist representation of why categories don't have a meaning and we get to decide what our reality is. And Helen Pluckrose just dismantles every single thing that he's saying. So it's not like he hadn't encountered the cogent rebuttal to those sort of misgivings. It's something that he should have had in his operating system at this point. But he went ahead and continued with those sort of arguments with you when there's evidence that he's encountered the fact that he's spewing nonsense, right? And that's what I think a lot of these people are doing. They've been given this tool, uh, uh, this rhetorical tool, where 
they can use language to turn propositions in on themselves and in on logic and in on reason. And they're not behaving as good faith actors. They are ideologues and demagogues and people who believe that the ends justify the means regardless uh, of anything else. And uh, it's just apparent uh, the more that I interact with the sort of people who are forwarding the postmodernist viewpoint and the critical theory viewpoints, um, they're not playing the same game that we're playing. We are trying to get at the truth and they're trying to obscure everything so that they can have social power. And yeah, so uh, when it comes to the academic stuff, I'm not well-versed. I am getting around to reading Foucault and uh, Derrida and all these other people. It's just, it's not my cup of tea. I don't really care for that stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm perfectly comfortable using my personal experiences and observations and statistical analyses and things of that nature to make my commentary on these phenomena. But sort of in the same way that you were completely disarmed in a way when he started saying some of these things, because they just, they're not observant of reason. And how you can't argue away something with reason that wasn't arrived at by reason in a sort of way. Um, thankfully, there are people uh, who are taking the literature seriously and taking the academic portion of this seriously. Uh, and I just sort of take my cues on those subjects from those people, mm. right? Yeah. And so, and right. And, I, and I'm not claiming that I went and read Derrida and Foucault and whatever. I'm just saying we were just like making sure we knew the, the landscape. And, and you're right. And that's partly why, yeah, I, I know which one you mean where Helen Pluckrose has read that stuff. And so she could just say, no, 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 actually, that's not what happened. This is what happened. Yeah. This is what that person said. And, and someone published this in 2007. Um, but it, it is interesting. Like, like you said, like with the implicit bias stuff or whatever that for you to even say, oh, well, they tried these experiments and blah, blah, blah. But if, it, if, if the notion of using experiments to determine truth is a Western patriarchal thing, then, you know, that's out the window. So, I mean, it's, I, I think some people, some of the listeners might not realize how deep this goes and how strong some of these claims are. Yeah. Uh, referencing James Lindsay again, uh, he calls this uh, the the totality of these concepts and uh, foundational philosophies um, cherry-picked and um, assembled into the form that they have now. He calls it a Kafka trap, where if you engage one of these people in um, conversation, they can use... All, so if you marshal a defense based on some sort of reason, they'll just say that, no, this is your white fragility, proving uh, uh, that mm-hmm. you are racist through its manifestation for how uncomfortable you are trying to sit in your suffering uh, and just accept the fact that you have been forwarding uh, white power just because of the fact that you benefit from it, you know? So uh, they have these stock rebuttals for uh, uh, any reason defense that you can marshal and they can just cut, cut you off at the knees with these things. So there's something valuable about what people uh, who are taking on these academic uh, underpinnings uh, are doing. But uh, I think it's just, you don't have to be that engaged to understand where this is headed and why, why we are in the situation that we're in. And uh, yeah, uh, you just have to take your cues from these people who know what they're doing. And uh, I've learned so much, uh, you know, before a couple of weeks ago, I was not really invested in any way in, in these ideas or having a defense against them. And I've been watching a lot of these other thinkers in, in the way that they are putting together a resistance to these ideas. And uh, uh, that's very valuable. Just find the right people who know what they're talking Mm -hmm. about. uh, And uh, you you can arm yourself with what you need to know to 
push back when you encounter this in person. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Folks, my guest has been Adrian Lee Oliver. You can get links to Adrian's work that I'm going to link to in other uh, fascinating interviews he's done at bobmurphyshow.com slash 135. Adrian, thanks so much for your time. No problem at all. Thank you for having me on. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.